Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, ACLU sues Colorado Springs for unjustifiable search of housing advocacy nonprofit and home by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Attention Denver property owners, you can now look up what the city will charge you for sidewalk repair and building by Rebecca Tauber. And, Denver Urban Garden staff are making a union run. They're asking management for voluntary recognition by Kevin Beatty. From Westward, I'll be reading, Trees removed from Congress Park to make way for sidewalks. Over 60 could be impacted by Benjamin Neufeld. And Family of Adam Fresquez calls for justice in Tesla charging station killing. Also by Benjamin Neufeld. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. ACLU sues Colorado Springs for unjustifiable search of housing advocacy nonprofit and home by Robert Davis. The ACLU of Colorado filed a lawsuit on July 31st against the city of Colorado Springs, its police officers, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations for allegedly obtaining Facebook messages and other personal data from a housing activist and a nonprofit organization without a warrant. In the lawsuit, which was filed in Denver's district court, the ACLU alleges that Colorado Springs officers targeted Jacqueline Jax Armendariz Unzueta and the nonprofit Chinook Fund following a housing rights march in July of 2021. The Colorado Springs Police Department arrested Unzueta and other activists during the march and charged them with minor violations. However, CSPD then used those minor charges to execute dragnet search warrants of the activists' personal devices and Unzueta's home, according to the lawsuit. The lawsuit also claims that the CSPD did not have probable cause to search Unzueta's devices or the Chinook Fund's private information. Instead, the CSPD allegedly relied on the claim that organizers were using the devices to share messages and photos which ACLU of Colorado Legal Director Tim McDonald argued would eviscerate the Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures. The warrants targeting Chinook and Armendariz were part of a pattern and practice of unconstitutional actions intended to teach activists a lesson. Colorado Springs police would retaliate against political expression with dragnet warrants to chill free speech, the lawsuit reads in part. The Denver Voice reached out to the city of Colorado Springs, CSPD, and the FBI for comments about the lawsuit, but did not immediately receive a reply. The ACLU's lawsuit is not the first time that CSPD has been ensnared in a legal battle over its policing tactics. In June of 2020, A CSPD detective posed as an activist with the Chinook Fund and gained access to the organization's internal chat groups, membership rosters, and email accounts, according to a report by the Colorado Springs Independent. The same thing happened at other left-leaning organizations like the local Democratic Socialists of America chapter, 
the Colorado Springs Tenant Union, and the Colorado Springs Mutual Aid and Solidarity Union. CSPD officers also seem to have targeted the activists who participated in the march, according to the lawsuit. For example, one officer was caught on tape saying that the activists would get a boot to the head, while another exclaimed, just get on that bullhorn and be like, hey, if y'all would like to see a parade and like to see these motherfuckers to quit interrupting it, just handle that for us. Stone them all to death. Our Constitution recognized the profound danger that these types of warrants would have on freedom and liberty and precluded them, McDonald said in a press release. Indeed, these types of general warrants were common in the time of King George and helped lead to the American Revolution. This case is about love for my community, Unzueta said in a press release. I hope CSPD will never again target, terrorize, and attempt to silence others as they did to me. The next two articles are from Denverite. Attention Denver property owners. You can now look up what the city will charge you for sidewalk repair and building. By Rebecca Tauber. Last November, Denver voters approved an ambitious plan to fix Denver's sidewalks and build them where there currently aren't any. The plan calls for the costs to be partially covered through fees on property owners starting in 2024. That figure is calculated based on how many linear feet of a given property faces the street. Fees also vary based on residential versus commercial property and the type of street the property faces. Since the aim of the program is to both repair and build sidewalks, owners with properties along streets without sidewalks will still pay the fee. The amount is based on the number of linear feet a property faces a public street, not how much it faces a sidewalk. Now, property owners can find that exact figure by using an online search tool from the city. Users can look up their cost by putting in their address, including north, south, east, and west directions on their street. Here's what property owners should know about how fees will be collected. Some neighborhoods can get a 20% fee discount if they are located in areas identified as Neighborhood Equity and Stabilization nest, neighborhoods. The city's tool will also indicate to you if your property is in a nest area. Some properties will come up in the search tool with $0 fees. This means they either do not face public streets and will not have fees, or they are part of a homeowners association, HOA, and get billed separately through their HOA. The fees are calculated using information from the assessor's office. Owners who believe their information is incorrect can fill out an online form. The city still does not know how much the program will cost in total and how long it will take. When campaigning for the ballot initiative, advocates estimated that the program would raise more than $40 million per year, which could be bonded to raise $850 million, fully funding and building the project within nine years. But a city analysis of the initiative found that the project could take around 27 and a half years, with a shortfall of $7.3 billion over that time. City officials said the major gap in cost would come from the price of acquiring land to build new sidewalks. Department of Transportation and Infrastructure spokesperson Nancy Kuhn said the actual cost and timeline are still unclear. We're doing an analysis of that. We hired a third-party person to do that, she said. They're in the process of working on that, and it's not finalized yet. So I think we'll have more to share on that. 
Denver Urban Gardens staff are making a union run. They're asking management for voluntary recognition by Kevin Beatty. They work with gardens, so they like garden puns, Carolyn Sprague said. Thus, it's only natural that Denver Urban Garden Workers United say they want to sow solidarity. This week, a group of 10 DUG workers signed a letter to management saying they want to start a union and giving their bosses until Friday afternoon to voluntarily recognize their effort. If the nonprofit's leaders don't, Sprague and her colleagues plan to hold an election to see if they can officially collectively organize and negotiate a contract on pay and working conditions. I think our story may in some ways be unique in that we love where we work, Sprague told us on Thursday. This union in no way reflects a uniform feeling of discomfort or frustration for us. It's really got a lot of excitement and hope in it. Brooke Gabbert, Denver Urban Gardens board president, said in a statement to Denverite that the board is learning about this request and will work through this process as necessary. We are actively engaged in conversations with the entire DUG team and look forward to ongoing dialogue that will ensure DUG remains a vibrant and impactful organization, the statement continued. The nonprofit began as a grassroots movement in the 1970s, its website states, when Northside Denverites worked to transform a parking lot into a place where a group of Hmong women could grow their own food. The Pecos Community Garden, completed in 1978, is still home to crops on 20 plots of land in Highland. The group formalized its nonprofit status in 1985 and now boasts 193 gardens across six counties in the metro. Shea Moon, one of the organizing staffers, said he and his colleagues hope DUG leadership will recognize that their union push is in line with the nonprofit's original spirit. There's a real through line here with a union forming now, he told us. The organization has grown quickly in the last year, Moon added, which is one reason why it may be appropriate to organize. There are currently about 20 full-time employees on staff. The 10 who signed the unionization letter all started working there in the last year or so, he said. Denverite reached out to two employees who have worked there longer than 12 months. One didn't respond. The other declined to comment. DUG has doubled in size in a year, and I think that growth has been imperfect, he told us. Our focus at this stage is we would like for the decision-making processes to be a little more democratic and transparent. He and his colleagues would like to have input on funding, organizational priorities, and where new gardens might go, which he said is happening in a black box right now. In 2021, DUG controversially sold the El Oasis Garden property in Highland, which its former executive director said helped him get out of debt. Moon said his feeling is the nonprofit is on fine financial footing now and that they can afford to let workers in on how they use their funds. In the last few years, national news outlets have focused on an organizing wave in all corners of the country. We've seen it most recently with film industry writers and actors, not to mention high-profile organizing by Amazon workers. Starbucks employees have submitted union paperwork around the country, including in Denver. In the last few months, employees from Casa Bonita, the Mercury Cafe, and the youth homeless shelter Urban Peak have made pushes to unionize too. 
Though Sprague said DUG's organizing effort is a little different, since they're not framing this about pay or the nature of their work, she said she has been inspired by the momentum she's seen elsewhere. Absolutely. I mean, I think when you see other workers coming together and articulate their rights, it is the most powerful thing that you can witness as a worker, she said. It plants a seed of hope. It really encourages you to look around and talk to your co-workers. It gives you points of reference. It gives you examples of what works and what doesn't. She said DUG Workers United didn't say much to outsiders about their growing movement, but she's heard from other local unions since they announced their intentions. DUG Workers United aims to become part of the Denver Newspaper Guild, a subsidiary of the Communication Workers of America, which Sprague says has had success unionizing nonprofit employees in the area. The following articles are from Westward. Trees removed from Congress Park to make way for sidewalks. Over 60 could be impacted by Benjamin Neufeld. A new sidewalk and other accessibility improvements to the playground at Congress Park could have impact over 60 trees, according to Denver's Department of Parks and Recreation, and six have gotten the axe. Sacrificed in favor of concrete, reads a makeshift memorial set up by the remains of one chopped tree. City contractors have already removed at least six trees from Congress Park to make way for a walkway connections to the playground. While the changes will bring obvious benefits to anyone with accessibility issues, while also doubling the size of the play area, according to project manager Chris Schooler, some neighbors are still mourning the loss. I think what happened with the trees is awful, says Victoria Epler, president of Congress Park Neighbors, a registered neighborhood organization for the area surrounding the park. The makeshift memorial that popped up recently includes a bouquet of flowers and a photo of one of the slain trees. According to a city contractor, four of the six trees that were removed were healthy, and at least one was a very big elm tree. The others were a medium-large locust tree, two medium-sized locust trees, and a 35-foot-tall spruce that was declining in health. Schooler says that he posted a flyer on the large elm tree notifying people of the impending removal. I got half a dozen emails and phone calls asking why we were doing that, he recalls. The pushback prompted him to call city forester Mike Swanson, who checked out the tree and determined that the root damage the playground construction would cause, combined with the age of the tree and the fact that a major section of it had already been cut out at some point, made its removal the right call, Schooler says. According to Swanson, he and the forestry department are working with DOTI now to try to find a way to work around trees for future sidewalk projects. Epler visited the playground area with Parks and Recreation Deputy Executive Director Scott Gilmore and was aware of the need for new sidewalks, but says that I would hope that they could site the sidewalks in such a way as to preserve the historic trees, but I have no control over that. Schooler has heard this plenty of times before and says that people often ask, couldn't you just curve the sidewalk? He typically tells them, well, yes, but then you start impacting other trees. In the area that will go under construction, Schooler has counted somewhere between 60 and 70 trees. While some of those may be impacted by construction, with possible damage to tree roots as a result of digging, 
The current plan is to work around the trees as much as possible. It's not like we're just taking the trees out without any thought or recourse, he says. To make up for the lost trees, 16 new trees will be planted near the renovated playground. According to Parks and Rec spokesperson Cindy Karwaski, the new species will include burr oak, western catalpa, chinkapin oak, royal raindrops crabapple, ginkgo shadblow serviceberry, and swamp white oak. The trunks of the trees that we're taking down will be recycled, Karvasky says, noting that some of their wood chips would be used in the new playgrounds. The construction at Congress Park is part of the Congress Park Playground and Walk Improvements Project, which aims to give the area a proper facelift. The project will build on community input to redesign and expand the existing playground to meet play, safety, and accessibility needs, reads the project description. The project will complement the improvements made at the adjacent pool and also address the need for improved sidewalk connections throughout the park internally and on the perimeter. Schooler notes that the current playground is undersized for the area and not compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. With this project, we're hoping to get that park completely up to code, he says. The construction will also bring a sidewalk to the park along East 8th Avenue. There's never been a sidewalk there, Gilmore notes, and we need a sidewalk, so we've been working with DOTI on that. Construction for the project is set to begin this fall and wrap up next summer. Family of Adam Fresquez calls for justice in Tesla charging station killing by Benjamin Neufeld. Months after Adam Fresquez was fatally shot at a Tesla charging station in Edgewater, his killer's identity is known to police, but that person still hasn't been arrested. Fresquez's family says enough is enough. These last three and a half months have been complete hell for us, said Adam's sister, Crystal Fresquez, at an August 11th protest held outside the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office. Honestly, it's bullshit that we're even having to deal with this, she blasted. The person that killed my brother should already be behind bars. Family members and supporters called on Jeffco DA Alexis King to use her influence and authority to push the Edgewater Police Department into making an arrest after detectives questioned the alleged killer, who allegedly turned himself in on the same day of the shooting and claimed self-defense, and then released him hours later. We can't even mourn, Crystal told reporters. We can't even grieve my brother because we're too busy fighting for justice for him. Fresquez, 33, was killed on the morning of May 3rd in the parking lot of Edgewater Public Market near West 20th Avenue and Depew Street, according to police. On May 9th, Edgewater police officials put out a Facebook post asking for the community's assistance to see if anyone witnessed a disturbance or road rage type incident between similar vehicles immediately prior to the shooting. The lead suspect turned himself in later in the day and was released after being questioned. We don't understand how he was released two hours after shooting and killing my son and leaving him to die in a parking lot, said Lena Mendez, Fresquez's mother. We want accountability, added Juan Mendez, Fresquez's father. We're looking for justice. We want some answers as to why the shooter is not behind bars. 
Dozens of people showed up to the August 11th protest to support Fresquez's family and call on the DA's office for justice. This is the third demonstration the family has held since Fresquez was killed. The individual that shot Adam is not currently in custody and has been cooperating with the investigation, said Edgewater Police Chief Eric S. Sonstegard in an August 11th email to Westward. It's our intent to meet with the first judicial district attorney's office in the coming weeks to present the case for potential criminal filing. Sonstegard added, I have been in regular contact with Adam's family and was in fact meeting with his mom and dad this morning. I respect their right to protest and want nothing more than to bring some form of comfort and closure to Lena, Juan, and their entire family. and cannot put into words the empathy I feel for a mother and father that lost a child. I have worked with dozens of families over the past three decades that have lost a son or daughter, and it gets worse every time. Lena and Juan Mendez said that they are not satisfied with how the meeting with Sonstegard went. He's adding another two weeks, is what Juan says he learned at the meeting. Forensics is what we were told that they were waiting on, Lena says. But we've been waiting on forensics for about a month and a half now. The pair doesn't feel confident that the investigation will go anywhere, saying, We don't know. That's the problem. That's why we're here. The family was seen trying to get Alexis King to meet with them face-to-face during the protest, but they were told that King was not there. Jefferson County District's Attorney Office spokesperson, Brianna Boatwright, said the office was aware of the protest, telling Westward, It's important to clarify that this case has not been presented to our office for charges. We have been assured by the Edgewater Police Department that they are actively investigating Mr. Fresquez's death, and therefore, any decision or action from our office at this point would be premature. She adds, We again offer our sincerest condolences to Mr. Fresquez's family and friends and continue to maintain open lines of communication with the family's representative. We understand that loved ones are frustrated and respect their right to peaceful protest. Mayor Johnston puts micro-communities plan into motion for Denver's homeless problem by Benito L. Kelty. On August 16th, Mayor Mike Johnston made his next big move in the city's ongoing battle against homelessness, revealing that his homeless resolution team had started requesting proposals from local organizations to build and operate micro-communities for people living on the street. The move gets Johnston one step closer to his public pledge of sheltering 1,000 individuals by the end of the year and brings the housing portion of his attack plan more into focus. According to Denver's new mayor, on August 11th, his team started looking for nonprofit organizations willing to build, operate, and provide supportive services, such as mental health or substance abuse treatment, for 40 to 100 people across a collection of 7 to 10 groupings of small housing units, or micro-communities, distributed throughout the city. Each one would provide bathrooms and trash pickup. Nonprofits had carried out similar projects in recent years in the metro area. One example is the beloved Community Village, which comprises 11 tiny homes near the intersection of Interstate 70 and Colorado Boulevard. Aurora currently has 30 pallet shelters measuring 8 feet by 8 feet that the city and nonprofits work together to build and manage. 
Several requests for proposals have been made available for nonprofits to outline how they'd bring city-funded micro-communities to Denver. The RFPs aimed at bringing in builders are separate from those for service providers, Johnston said. The RFPs for construction have yet to go out, but the city has at least one posted for operators and supportive services. The mayor is looking for smaller, local community-based nonprofits to step in and provide those services, and also small construction-based mom-and-pop organizations who want to be part of this, though it's an opportunity for larger-scale organizations to help as well, he said. Cole Chandler, senior advisor to Johnston on his homelessness resolution team, explained that while the city is issuing RFPs, he also expects to call on multiple nonprofits and service providers. The RFP that is available is for service providers to bid on operating and providing wraparound services in micro-communities, Chandler said. We know it's going to take a whole ecosystem of service providers to really scale this effort related to micro-communities and provide key wraparound services. Any organization can bid. That would include Denver-based organizations as well as organizations that are not currently working in the city and county of Denver, Chandler said. Chandler and Johnston shied away from giving an estimate on how much the micro-communities project will cost. Basically, we're asking organizations to bid and let us know what it takes to service these communities in the best way possible, Chandler said. We haven't attached a particular dollar amount. We look to negotiate and contract for the services, but no particular amount has been assigned per individual or per community at this point. Johnson said the city is currently working on whittling down the list of potential sites for the micro-communities, with the intention of having them widely spread around the city once everything is settled. We'll have options in all the city council districts, he told reporters. We've been doing a lot of work on tightening and refining the list of potential sites, Johnston added. We've been working through all the city agencies, from real estate to access to utilities, to things we know are important. The criteria for choosing the sites will come down to ones that can most easily offer access to utilities and don't have to be rezoned, according to city officials. Johnston is ultimately looking for sites that have proximity to transit, that have proximity to food sources, and that have some reasonable distance from schools. He also wants to see equitable distribution around the city in order to prevent cramming the homeless population into one area. We want to take what has been historically very concentrated services of large numbers of people in a small part of the city and actually decentralize those, Johnson explained. So you have people in smaller communities spread out to different parts of the city. One last thing Denver is looking for in nonprofits and community partners is services for women or trans or non-binary individuals as well as veterans, couples, people with service pets, among others, according to Johnston. Those Denverites come with different kinds of needs and different kinds of support, he said. And we have nonprofits with different kinds of expertise in that kind of support. Across the various micro-communities, the units may look different, the providers may look different, and the community of Denverites look different, the mayor added. While he's unsure about the timeline, Johnston vows to have the first micro-community up and running before the end of the year. The plan is consistent with how he laid out his homeless resolution plan during his campaign for mayor 
and also on July 25th, when he announced the city would be relying on four types of housing to shelter 1,000 people by 2024. Existing units, converted hotel rooms, converted commercial buildings, and micro-communities. Johnson said the city would rely heavily on nonprofits to build those units and offer services there, which is exactly what it's doing. The mayor noted on Wednesday that the city is following through on acquiring other properties that can offer multiple units for homeless individuals. He mentioned that the city finalized the purchase of the Stay Inn at 12033 East 38th Avenue with federal funds to convert its hotel rooms into 96 units of supportive housing, a $9 million plan that had been in the works since late last year. Anyone who wants to ask Mayor Johnston about the micro-communities can do so in person at his ongoing town halls. The town hall schedule is posted online. The mayor said Wednesday that he sees 100 to 300 people each night at the events. Bears are having a moment, crashing weddings, hammocks, mudrooms, and wildlife sanctuaries, by Katie Cheshire. Bears are having a moment. No, we aren't talking about Hulu's The Bear, which just put out an excellent second season, season, complete with more mouth-watering shots of Italian beef. These are real-life Smokies that have been making headlines in this state. There's Hank the Tank, also known as Henrietta the Tank, a virtual sensation who just arrived in Colorado from California, an unexpected wedding crasher in Boulder County, a bear that attacked a man in a hammock in Trinidad, and another that broke into a home outside Trinidad and it attacked an 82-year-old woman. And much further afield, there's the full-blown conspiracy over where the China is harboring a human bear at a public zoo. The furry creatures just can't stay out of the news. In Colorado, the most common bear is the black bear, which can actually sport coats of different colors, including brown and blonde. Black bears are curious, intelligent, and very resourceful. They will explore all possible food sources, according to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Bear Information Site. If they find food near homes, campgrounds, vehicles, or communities, they'll come back for more. Bear noses have a snack radar that puts stoners with the munchies to shame. Typically, they're able to smell food up to five miles away. Hungry bears that come in contact with humans can cause damage, and if they get too aggressive, must be, as CPW puts it, destroyed. Every time we're forced to destroy a bear, it's not just the bear that loses, the agency's website laments. We all lose a little piece of the wildness that makes Colorado so special. CPW encourages people to be bear aware by doing things like bear-proofing garbage cans and not leaving food, including bird seed, out where bears can easily access it. The state's Bear Aware program is volunteer-based and helps communities make it safer for bears and humans to coexist. Here are some of the -the in-the-news bears of which you should be aware. Another California transplant. According to U.S. Census Bureau data released in June, Over 30,000 people moved from California to Colorado in 2021. Now, the Centennial State has welcomed one of its heftiest denizens from the Golden State, a 500-pound bear known as Hank the Tank, or as Governor Jared Polis called her in an August 4th tweet, 
Henrietta the tank, following confirmation of her gender. The Lake Tahoe area had long been plagued by what was assumed to be one male bear, nicknamed the tank, for its gigantic size. It was suspected to be behind at least 28 home invasions, although authorities later discovered that there were actually at least three bears breaking into residence in the area. However, one female bear did the lion's share of the damage, and DNA has confirmed she was behind at least 21 break-ins. Bear 64F had been tagged and fitted with a tracking collar by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife in March. She slipped her collar in May, but the two months she had it were enough for the department to figure out exactly which crimes were likely committed by this queen, and she did the damage with her three cubs in tow. Dubbed the tank, Bear 64F was captured on August 4th and was shipped by truck to the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Springfield, Colorado. The sanctuary is an offshoot of the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, which recently headed up an effort to relocate animals from a destitute Puerto Rican zoo. The facility will now add Henrietta the Tank to its collection. While this infamous transplant makes her way to the 10,000-acre refuge, her cubs will head to a sanctuary in California to be rehabilitated in hopes of a successful release into the wild. Look no further for the star of a Wedding Crashers remake. Wedding bliss isn't just for married couples. It's also for wandering bears in Boulder County that managed to ransack dessert tables. That was the case earlier this month at what Nine News described as a very Colorado wedding crashed by a black bear. High school sweethearts Caitlin McRossi-Martinez and Brandon Martinez also got hit with some monsoon rains, which proved for an epic, but drenched, photo shoot. But the perfect Colorado picture came when their uninvited guests showed up. The bear reportedly joined the festivities once the dancing started and gobbled up some sweet treats before being shooed away by security. Images captured by the people who were there show the creature standing on top of the dessert table. Even in a busy wedding season, the night will surely be one to remember. Hammock horrors in Trinidad and another intruder. On a sadder note, it appears that two of the state's headline-grabbing bears are headed for destruction after incidents in and around Trinidad. In early August, a bear interrupted a camper enjoying a hammock sesh near the Perticle Purgatoire River Bottoms. The man told CPW wildlife officers that he was in a hammock Saturday night when he heard a rustling noise, turned on his headlamp, and saw a dark-colored bear next to him, CPW said in an August 6th release. The bear said the man bit him on the upper right arm, turned, and wandered off. CPW announced that it was searching for the furry perpetrator and, under agency policy, it must be euthanized if it's caught. Bear attacks are rare, and we take them very seriously, Mike Brown, CPW's area wildlife manager for the region, noted in the release. We are doing everything we can to locate this bear, and we continue to investigate the incident. Luckily, the victim's injury appears to be relatively minor, and the bear seems a tad lazy. One bite, and then it lost interest? It's safe to say the man who was bitten didn't have to channel his inner hue glass, which is definitely a good thing for both him and the bear. 
The incident was the third reported bear attack in Colorado this year, and a fourth was reported just days later after a small cinnamon-colored black bear broke into a home near Bon Carbo, west of Trinidad, shortly after midnight on August 11th, and scratched an 82-year-old woman on the legs before escaping. Even though the injuries were very minor scratches, Brown says, CPW policy classifies any bear that causes injury as dangerous and a candidate for euthanasia. The two Trinidad incidents are considered unrelated. Our bears are not people, Chinese Zoo insists. After a video of a Malayan sun bear standing on two legs at a zoo in Hangzhou, China, went viral, the zoo crafted a statement from the bear's perspective, clarifying that it is definitely not a person. Let me reiterate again to everyone that I am a sun bear, not a black bear, not a dog, a sun bear, the statement read. Interesting strategy to personify a bear that people were already questioning as potentially being a person. People were wary of the creature's DNA makeup because of the way the bear stood up and gestured toward people, as well as its saggy fur, which many observers said it made it look like a human in a bear suit. Girl, we've never seen a bear look like that, Twitter user Ariana Unext posted. Twitter account Bear Posting weighed in, saying, That's unfortunate, because that is what sun bears normally look like. They're so lanky and uncanny that it shouldn't be surprising how someone could mistake them for a dude in a costume. These bears are just little weirdos, and that's okay. It's time for bears to pack on the pounds. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is now pushing its annual Bears Are Entering Hyperphagia message since over half of Colorado's 2022 bear incidents occurred in the months of August, September, and October. Hyperphagia is the time of year when bears start preparing for hibernation by eating as much food as they possibly can, sometimes for up to 20 hours a day. During this time, CPW cautions, they can be more likely to get into conflicts with people as they try to reach a 20,000 calorie per day mark. 20 chicken sandwiches, 10 orders of french fries, 10 soft drinks, and 10 milkshakes is the approximate fast food order needed to total 20,000 calories, the agency notes. But since most bears don't frequent fast food joints, CPW warns about leaving out trash, bird seed, pet food, and barbecue grills. Removing attractants can help eliminate conflicts and encounters with black bears, it notes. It's especially critical that people are extra vigilant and proactive in removing all attractants from outside homes and campsites. The dreamy success of Celestial Seasoning's Sleepy Time Bear, Colorado's newest mascot by Chady Cheshire. Sleepy Time Bear is back, in a big way. In October of 2021, Celestial Seasonings finally woke up Sleepy Time Bear after he'd slept for 50 years, snuggled in a green armchair in front of a welcoming fire on millions of boxes of Sleepy Time tea. As legend has it, that bear drank a cup of the tea, which is mainly chamomile and mint, and fell fast asleep for five decades. But then the marketing team determined that a mascot might enliven its sales and rudely awakened the bear who'd missed everything from disco to Y2K to the invention of social media. That didn't stop Sleepy Time Bear from dominating TikTok and Instagram as the new face of Celestial Seasonings, however.
He's just been an absolute hit, says Emily Rosen, director of marketing for the Hain Celestial Group, the parent company of Celestial Seasonings since 2000. The virility of his videos and what he does and how he just wishes he was asleep, it's so relatable. Even asleep, Sleepy Time Bear had already inspired memes and Halloween costumes with his trademark blue nightshirt and floppy red hat. Social media fans posted about pining for his sleepy lifestyle. Twitter user Jordan Samuel urged everyone to stop glamorizing the grind, start glamorizing the Sleepy Time Tea Bear, just days before he was revived. When people think Celestial Seasonings, they think Sleepy Time, Rosen says. He's just this distinctive asset for us. People are so crazy for him. You see tattoos of Sleepy Time Bear across the world. He's lovable. He's relatable. He's approachable. He's wise, but in a nice, friendly way. On its Instagram, Celestial Tea usually gains a few hundred likes on normal product posts, which might be respectable, but pales compared to the popularity of its reels of the Sleepy Time Bear. A recent video gained over 16,000 likes. It depicts the bear drinking tea with the caption, My beige flag is that I will be in bed by 9 p.m. no matter what. Worked till 8.30? In bed by 9. Invited to go out? In bed by 9. Laundry pile on my bed? That's the laundry pile on the chair now because I am in bed by 9. Over on TikTok, Celestial Seasonings Tea garnered an astonishing 4 million views for a clip with Sleepy Time Bear shaking his head in horror with the caption, When you made plans while feeling extroverted, and now your friends are texting, Where are you? But you were about to snuggle up in bed. Sleepy Time Bear's story began in Boulder, where Celestial Seasonings is based. The company was founded in 1969 by a group including Mo Siegel, Peggy Clute, John Hay, Wick Hay, and Lucinda Ziesing. By 1972, the company had its famous hibiscus zinger line and its sleepy time tea ready to sell. When Celestial Seasonings wanted art for its sleepy time box, John Hay's artist sister, Beth Underwood, stepped up. In 1973, she painted the original artwork that shows a zoomed-out version of the famous box where the bear is joined by his wife and four bear cubs. The original painting still resides in Boulder, hanging in the office of Tim Collins, general manager of Haines Celestial. According to Collins, Sleepy Time Tea is consistently the company's highest-selling tea. When Sleepy Time Bear first woke up, Celestial Seasonings heard from a lot of people about the new mascot, including Stephen Colbert and Hulu. Collins jokes that the company told Hulu that it's, if it's ever looking to craft a reality show about bears that sleep, Sleepy Time Bear might be available. The TikToks and Reels with Mr. Sleepy Time are made by an outside ad agency, and while the company hasn't received requests specific to the videos, it has been asked if the bear can make an appearance at a wedding. Collins says that the company isn't sure that the bear would be much of a party guest. It doesn't know if he is able to wake up for that long of a time period. If the bear had a dating profile, though he wouldn't because he is married, it would say that his job is sleep ambassador. He's a Taylor Swift fan, and yes, he managed to stay awake long enough to secure Bera's tour tickets. His favorite color is red, like his hat.
Could he have friends that join him from other celestial seasonings boxes? We haven't talked about bringing others to life, but we've got some really amazing characters, Collins says, referencing the box for true blueberry tea, which has a bear rafting on the front and a mouse tagging along. People wrote in and said, Why does the bear have a helmet and the mouse doesn't? You need to get a helmet on the mouse. There's these fun little Easter eggs. But Blueberry Bear isn't going to come to life anytime soon, he says. In the meantime, though, you can see Sleepy Time Bear's cottage when you join one of Celestial Seasonings' tours, which were introduced in 2005 at Celestial Seasonings' longtime home at 4600 Sleepy Time Drive in Boulder, then went on hold during the pandemic. They just started up again on August 12th and are offered during normal business hours Tuesday through Saturday. We wanted to make sure we were through the pandemic, Collins says. During the pandemic, we experienced a surge in demand. A lot more people were drinking tea and making sourdough bread and all that. So we wanted to make sure that we can continue to meet the demand. Though Celestial Seasonings sources its ingredients from 35 countries, the entire process, from cutting the herbs to mixing to packaging, is done in Boulder. Collins is proud of the company's dedication to its Colorado roots, as well as its emphasis on sustainability. The company has always made its tea bags without strings or tags to reduce waste, and it's continuing those efforts. It will soon remove plastic from the 10 million tea bags it packages per day by redesigning its boxes to be fully tamper-proof. On the tours, people learn all about tea making. Although they were free before the pandemic hit, Celestial Seasonings is now charging $5 per person. That's because the company wanted to encourage people to buy souvenirs, Collins says, so it's giving every tour participant a $5 discount for purchases at the gift shop. Along with its range of teas, which visitors can sample for free after a tour, the gift shop sells tea-related merchandise, including a stuffed version of Sleepy Time Bear. A box of Sleepy Time Tea runs $5.79 for 20 tea bags. That sense of community here, there's people that love this brand, love our teas, and it's so energizing for us, Collins says. We've got 100 operators working on the factory floor, and they were begging us to reopen the tours. You would think it's a huge pain in the butt. And they're like, no, we love it. It gives us such pride that people are excited to see what we do. And they're excited to see Sleepy Time Bear, but they might not catch him awake during the 45-minute tour. While he is the star of the introductory video in which he teaches tourgoers about safety, by the time you reach the Sleepy Time Cottage, chances are good he'll be snoozing in his chair. Summer Scream Takes Over Lakeside Amusement Park by John Flathman Have you ever rented a video from Blockbuster? asks Andrew Novick. You might have a chance to do that at this party. Can't say any more than that, but... He trails off, laughing mischievously. The unconventional entrepreneur is teasing us with hints about the upcoming installations at Summer Scream, the fundraising bash on Thursday, August 24th, produced by Denver Film and held at Lakeside Amusement Park. Every summer for the past 11 years, the cinema-supporting nonprofit and host of the upcoming 46th Denver Film Festival has taken over historic Lakeside for all-you-can-drink and all-you-can-ride blowout.
Post-COVID, it began inviting Novik and his fellow experiential auteur, Christopher Getson, to put their own unique spin on the event. And this year, the two quirky creatives are brewing up a 90s-inspired smorgasbord of activities. Last year, we had people all around the park doing various things, like fortune-telling and talking about lakeside history, says Novik. And we don't really like repeating too many things. So this year is going to be pretty much all new. The innovative pair is reluctant to give away much, but it's clear that they have plenty of offbeat treats planned for this year's party animals. You're going to get to play Pogs, listen to all sorts of cool 90s music with DJ Buddy Bravo, and you might spot a Furby, and it might be bigger than you are, promises Novik. And there's lots of ways to win prizes, stuff from some of the sponsors, movie tickets, and stuff like that. There'll definitely be a lot of ways to interact and win. So we have all these things happening kind of throughout the park, throughout the night, he continues, because, you know, all you can drink, all you can ride, that's fun enough already, but we want to go way past that. Even without a 90s theme, a visit to Lakeside stands out. It was built in 1908, making it the oldest amusement park in Colorado and is known for its exposition white city architecture style, as well as a wide array of classic rides, including a Ferris wheel, the original carousel, and bumper cars. One of only a few trolley parks still operating in the country, the park looks across Lake Rhoda to the mountains in the distance, and at sunset, the famous display of 100,000 lights mixes with the abundant neon, becoming a magical vision that has delighted generations of families and fun seekers. The classic summer scream recipe of all-inclusive drinks and rides is a well-loved tradition for Denver Film, as well, explains Halia McAteer, senior manager of events and partnerships. People purchase tickets, and that gives them access to the park, so they get to ride rides all night and do all the stuff that Lakeside normally provides, she says. Your ticket includes access to all of the bars, and it's all you can drink, so it's really just a big party. Everyone comes and just has a great time. It's our only fundraising event that we do all year, and we're pretty much the only cultural organization that they let take over the park in this way, so it's really an event that's very one-of-a-kind. After a two-year pause during the pandemic, the organization decided it was time to tweak the formula a bit. In the past two years, we started working with Chris and Andrew. They have created kind of an immersive experience component to this, says McAteer. Last year, we played off our brand and really dove into the history of Lakeside and the, and the nostalgia of Lakeside and its rich history. And this year, we're doing a 90s brand and theme, and we're working with them to create some really unique, cool experiences, including a life-sized Furby and a Tamagotchi photo booth. Getson and Novik are eminently well-suited to the project. They're among the most creative players in Denver's immersive artistic landscape. Novik has been spinning out wacky projects in the area for decades, from his extreme pancake breakfast at the Denver County Fair to a documentary on John Bonet Ramsey's tricycle. Before the South Park creators took over Casa Bonita, he even spearheaded a fundraiser to save the Pink Palace. Getson is also an in-demand experienced sculptor who designed an interactive mystery quest with History Colorado last year that took participants around the city looking for clues while learning about Denver. 
Further back, he worked with Denver Film on the legendary immersive game at the former Stanley Film Festival. In addition to this year's packed slate of 90s homages, which includes performances throughout the night from Rocky Mountain Pro Wrestling, Getson and Novick are encouraging attendees to dress as their favorite 90s film character or in the era's style. People can really go as far in with it as they want, says Novick, adding that the decade appeals even to those who didn't directly experience it. Some of the folks who are into the 90s weren't born in the 90s. Accordingly, they're aiming for a night that can be enjoyed by everyone, as long as they're of legal drinking age. This isn't going to just be a nostalgia trip. This is going to be a remix, says Getson. Novick adds, Come early, stay late, so you don't miss anything. Summer Scream, 6 to 11 p.m., Thursday, August 24th, Lakeside Amusement Park, 4601 Sheridan Boulevard, Lakeside. Event is 21 and over. Tickets are $75 in advance, $85 at the door. Get them at denverfilm.org. Rico's, an Inglewood staple, takes over former Pizza Express on East Colfax by Molly Martin. I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. Just take it and run with it, says Lucopolis, who took over Rico's Pizzeria and Italian Kitchen at 3500 South Broadway in late 2019. Now he's added a second Rico's location in the former Pizza Express at 2700 East Colfax Avenue across the street from East High School. Rico's was founded by Rico Marola in 1979. For decades, it was known in Inglewood as a neighborhood go-to for no-frills pizza, pasta, and its famously affordable meatball and sausage subs. But by 2019, Marola, who ran the place with the help of his family, was looking to sell. Lucopolis grew up in the industry, he says. His father owned a pizzeria in the Bronx, then ran one in Connecticut for decades after the family relocated there. Lucopolis moved to Denver, where his wife is from, in 1996. For 17 years, he owned and operated Papu's Pizzeria on Leedsdale. The lease for that business was set to end December 2019, and Lucopolis was planning to get out of the industry. In my mind, I was going to move on, he admits. But when the opportunity to take over Rico's came up, he couldn't pass it up. Rico's on Broadway is like you win the lottery of pizza places, he says. We were blessed to take it over. The second outpost of Rico's Pizzeria and Italian Kitchen is located at 2700 East Colfax Avenue and is open from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Saturday. For more information, visit ricos-pizzeria.com. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.